I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're joined by Dr. Molly Malloy, an associate professor, retired reference librarian, and American specialist at NMSU, and a member of this year's J. Paul Taylor Social Justice Symposium's organizing committee. We'll also be joined by Spencer Herrera, an associate professor of Spanish at NMSU who chaired this year's organizing committee. Justice for journalists was the theme of this year's symposium which took place Wednesday and Thursday, April 12th and 13th, on the university's campus. The symposium offered a special tribute to the late J. Paul Taylor, a revered New Mexico legislator and longtime educator who founded the symposium. Taylor passed away Sunday, February 12th, 2023, after celebrating his 102nd birthday last August. NMSU's College of Arts and Sciences established the symposium in 2005 when Taylor suggested bringing resources of the university and community together to address areas of concern for underserved populations in the region. We'll talk about this year's theme, panel discussions, keynote speaker, and why justice for journalists is a particularly timely and poignant conversation to have in 2023. This week, I'm grateful to have Molly and Spencer joining us. Molly, Spencer, thanks for making time to join us today. Thank you for inviting us. It's my pleasure, Damien. Tell us about the symposium and how it got started. Well, the symposium, um, the J. Paul Taylor Social Justice Symposium has its roots um, all the way back to 2005. And from my understanding, uh, Mr. Taylor was adamant that, you know, the university, uh, particularly the College of Arts and Sciences, you know, do something to show that um, how they're committed to the community, but also to um, be committed to the, the idea of social justice, um, not just teach it, but um, bring people to campus, bring the community to campus, share information about um, an important topic, um, have speakers here who are familiar with the topic because they dedicate their lives to whatever theme it is that we're covering that year, and then allow people to come away more informed and hopefully um, to make better decisions in their daily lives, or also um, as informed citizens. Molly, is there anything you want to add to that? Sure. Um, One of the details I actually learned last night um, from Neil Harvey, um, professor in government, who has always been um, very active in the social justice awards and in all of the symposia, I believe, over the years. But this actually got started, um, I think he said back in 2002, with uh, some funds that came through a legal settlement for um, uh, when a person who I think was a student in government had um, demonstrated or handed out pamphlets, basically just a free speech issue on campus. And um, there was a, a lawsuit that generated some funding to sort of continue or to 
expand access to freedom of to free speech across the NMSU campus. So that we're talking about 20 years ago. And so with this money, it became sort of the seed for what became the Social Justice Awards and also the Social Justice Symposium that was um, named after Mr. Uh, Taylor. So it it has these roots in the idea of people speaking up, speaking out and um, championing causes that, you know, sometimes are controversial, sometimes are difficult politically to speak of. You know, it just kind of became an annual event that highlights work in our community, in our area and in the country and, and even cross borders like like this this year's symposium definitely crossed the border into talking about justice for journalists in Mexico and the border region as well. So it it has those roots also, which I think are very positive and inspirational. I'd like for both of you to uh, speak a little bit about this year's theme, Justice for Journalists. Spencer, uh, we'll start with you. Well, every year is a different theme. Um, and, and just to comment on what Molly said, if I could, um, I, I do know that um, the Social Justice Awards, according to uh, Neil Harvey, began in 2002. So the Social Justice Awards predates the symposium by a little bit, but they, they're 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 tied together now for sure. But um, every year is a different theme. And uh, there's been um, many themes throughout the years, uh, justice for migrants, justice for field workers, justice for um, incarcerated parents. Um, and so every year the committee picks a theme. And so um, this year I had offered to uh, basically uh, organize a symposium and I am on uh, Molly's listserv and she sends a lot of uh, important articles that are going on uh, in the region and uh, Mexico and, you know, even the hemisphere. And a lot of it, you know, has to deal with uh, things that are happening that, you know, really unfortunate um, violence, but also, you know, these troubles that are, that are happening in the, that you can see in the in elections and with COVID and the people that are on the front lines are the journalists. Um, they're the ones trying to uh, get us the news and um, otherwise we would not know what's going on. And so I would see these articles and, and then, you know, some of them, you know, the news people are, are the news. Um, it's really unfortunate. And so I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for us to learn more about the work that journalists do um, on both sides of the border, as Molly mentioned, because we had some speakers that came from Juarez and then some of our, um, our keynote speaker, Although she's from the U.S. and lives in the U.S., uh, she spent many years in Mexico City. So really just to, to understand what it's like to be a journalist, whether you're a writer, an investigator, or a photojournalist, and to gain a, a bigger, you know, I would hope, uh, appreciation for the work that they do and, um, you know, just to get the news out. And I, I thought that it was, it was a timely theme. Absolutely. And just another comment on that. Um, one of the aspects of the symposium this year, we showed a documentary film that I believe came out in 2022. And it was really excellent. It followed the path of four journalists, two working in the United States and one in Brazil and one in uh, Mexico. And one of the people who 
let's see, it was a reporter for the Guardian newspaper, which is actually a British newspaper, but his assignment was to cover the 2020 elections. And then the reporter from Mexico was actually a photojournalist who was covering civil unrest and and demonstrations in Mexico City that same year. This is COVID year and U.S. election year. Then another person was a photographer, photojournalist with the Miami Herald. And he was focused, uh, his participation in the movie was mainly on covering the demonstrations in relation to uh, the murder of, of George Floyd, also one of the big events of 2020 that created a lot of social unrest. And then the other was a Brazilian journalist, a newspaper reporter, who had been um, very severely attacked in by uh, President Bolsonaro in, in Brazil for her reporting on corruption in his government. So the, it, the, the film followed these four people very closely and, and had them speak. There was no narration to this film at all. It was all just the journalists themselves speaking about their work and showing their work to document what was happening in governments, in the streets, and um, at rallies, Trump rallies, for instance, the British journalist was uh, one of his jobs was to go to Trump rallies and, and basically be abused by the people there. Most of the abuse was, in his case, was not physical, but uh, just extraordinary Shouting. verbal abuse that we've heard about. And um, and then he comments on it and, and reflects on on what this means to him and his calling as a journalist. Like, how does it feel to be talked to this way by the people that I'm my job is to to cover them and to to show what's happening? I thought he was his comments were very thought provoking. All of them were all of them commented on on what was happening in their lives in relation to this very tumultuous year. And um, so anyway, that was, I think, a way to really get a handle on how the career of journalism is changing and how journalists have become the story, which for most journalists, they don't want that. to be. They definitely don't want that. Exactly. And and so what can we do in society as as interested participants in our world to to create a more uh, just situation to create social justice for the people who are out there in many cases, in many countries, putting their lives on the line to bring us the news and to let us know what's happening in the world. So um, I thought the film was really good. It was maybe a little bit depressing because of the topics that were covered and the Basically, the, the human crisis faced by these uh, reporters and photojournalists um, as they you know, are trying to do their jobs as best they can and and yet are confronted with this whole other piece of the puzzle that that they never expected, but is now part of the, our our day to day lives. Yeah. And that film is called Endangered. It was um, by it's by HBO documentary films. You can just type in endangered documentary. It, it did come out in 2022. Um, so you, the trailers are online and it is a really good film, really informative. <laughs> Listening to Molly retell the story of 2020, I, I, I had flashbacks to what a tumultuous year it was. And especially for working journalists, as I 
was at the time and still am, but that was every day it seemed uh, brought something new and surprising. Absolutely. And there were many thoughts and commentaries about that during the symposium this year. With this being the first symposium since J. Paul Taylor's passing, how does this year's theme help carry on his legacy? That's a great question. You know, one of the things that Dr. Cynthia Bejarano had stated, and she has run the um, symposium many times. Uh, she's a, a close friend of the of the Taylor family. But what, one thing she said, which I thought was striking, is that, you know, no matter the theme, Mr. Taylor never said no. It's too controversial or it's it's too this or too that, you know, because there were some themes that um, people might wonder, wow, you know, I, we're going to take that on. And they did. Right. Because it was important at, at that time, particularly it's still important. But, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, many things I heard about Mr. Taylor, and I only met him twice, is that he was such a nice man you know, such a, a, a decent human being. And yet he didn't shy away from supporting these causes, right? We can, we can, you know, and I think that's what the topic of this, this year talks about is we can disagree, but we can disagree and still be decent people, especially to each other. We don't have to demonize the other or put the other person's in lives in danger, um, and I think that film are endangered, right? It's not that journalism, you know, when you see the title and you think about it, the field of journalism is endangered. And then after you watch the documentary, you realize the lives of journalists are sometimes endangered, right? They are literally put in danger by people who disagree with them. And so, you know, um, it was unfortunate to hear the news of his passing. I think that he would have, uh, I can only imagine based off of the reception from the family members that they really appreciated the theme, right? That um, the theme of social justice is not to shy away from important topics or to, you know, pick something that most people can agree upon, but to really discuss an issue that is important um, and bring light to that issue. And then let people make their own decisions. So, you know, I think I think it was a great theme for the year uh, based on everything that's happened in the last couple of years. And I'd like to think that um, we uh, did a good job in continuing the legacy of Mr. Taylor by by hosting this particular symposium. And also I'll just point out we had two uh Members of, of Mr. Taylor's family, his daughter, uh, Mary Helen Rachie, and her son, Paul Rachie. And Paul is a very well-known photojournalist here in the border region. He um, is rooted here in Mesilla, and he, but travels all up and down the U.S.-Mexico border right now and is focusing his photography and his reporting um, on the border region, and especially in relation to migration. And he moderated one of our panels and arranged for the journalists from Juarez to visit and and present on um, Wednesday night. And um, Mary Helen was also extremely gracious in um, sharing her reflections on the passing of her father and um, 
and his place in our community. So we were really fortunate to have them present for all of the events of the um, of the symposium this year. Tell us about the panel discussions and what came out of them. Well, I'll start well, with that. Go ahead, Molly. Okay, one of the things I was just taking some notes from from some stuff I wrote down, but one of the things um, that I thought was very powerful on um, Wednesday night, uh, we had two journalists from Juarez, uh, Rocio Gallegos, who runs a independent news magazine called La Verdad or The Truth, came to present about her work and the work of her collective that runs this news source. And then we also had via Zoom, um, Jose Luis Gonzalez, who is a photojournalist in in Ciudad Juarez. And um, he appeared by Zoom because of a border crossing issue at the last minute. But um, one of the things that Rocio said during the. Um, oh, and we also had uh, uh, Angela, Angela. who is a longtime border journalist who's covered the U.S.-Mexico border for many years and is now working as a radio journalist at uh, KTEP in, in El Paso. And, and um, Paul Ratchie was on that. And one too. Paul, Paul was also on that panel. So um, I guess one of the things that people must have it must have really made an impression because after this was said, every other panelist or many commentators, including the keynote speaker um, last night, referred to it. Um, someone asked Rocio, the journalist from Juarez, what she wanted the government to do to protect journalists. And her answer was extremely direct. She said, we don't want the government to protect journalists. We want the community, the society, and the people to protect journalists. In other words, our work is not for the government. Our work is for the people. And it's the people that need to stand up and protect the work that journalists do. And in the case of Mexico, often to protect the very lives of the journalists who are trying to bring them the information that they need. Um, it was a really powerful uh, statement and I think really um, shows how important this issue is, especially to journalists that are working in places where the dangers are not just to your feelings, but to your very bodily existence. And so anyway, that was the thing I wanted to make sure got into uh, this uh, podcast today. I think it was an incredibly important and necessary moment for us to think about what journalists do and how important it is that they be supported by the society. Absolutely. Spencer? Yeah, you know, uh, Molly hit the nail on the head that that quote, I think a lot of people came away with that, you know, if you're going to come away with a, a soundbite or a memory, it was that one, right? That we don't need the government to protect us. We need the people to protect us. And yeah, in fact, I was just talking to Ileana Vizcara, one of the committee members about that this morning and what, what we came away with. And that one certainly came, certainly hit home. But also, you know, um, we saw uh, Jose Luis Gonzalez's work. Um, he, he, presented through Zoom, and uh, we saw a lot of his images. Um, and I know that Paul has a lot of great images too. But, you know, the thing about uh, photography, I worked with a photographer for many years on, on a project, and he was a film photographer, and he would mention the speed of the camera, and then he says, you got to have this, and he goes, and you got to be there. 
right? You you can't just make up these images. You, you got to be there. Phone and, it in, right? Yeah, and and uh, these are tragic moments. Oftentimes, whether it's the fire that killed. You know, many people at that detention center in, in Wattis, you know, that he's was there. The, the image that came to my mind the, the minute you said that. Yeah. And just being there. Right. And then it's the same thing with the uh, documentary. Um, the woman in Mexico, the journalist, she's a photojournalist. And, you know, here she is during COVID trying to capture the moment. So people realize, hey, this is real. Uh, the government is not giving us accurate numbers. So. You know, um, picture tells, uh, can say a thousand words, right? And so um, just that idea that uh, they're sharing something, a, a moment that is so critical. And they're beautiful images, but they also capture a moment um, that they were there and this did happen. So that's, you know, I, sure. I think um, for me, that was really powerful to see images because I, 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 I love good photography. But there's also, you know, this... Um, the camera can only do so much. Uh, really, it's 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 the person who knows how to do it, when to do it, where to go, and to be there. Um, and so if you want to see, see an upset photojournalist, uh, ask, uh, tell them, wow, you must have a really good camera. <laughs> <laughs> Their blood will boil. I, I have. Uh, I've been close to saying. I've been close to saying things almost as dumb as that with my former uh, colleague who was a photographer. Cause I just couldn't believe the images that he would capture. And, you know, um, I, think back yeah, to, I, mean, I think back to COVID. Um, it's just a machine. I could write a hundred stories about the pandemic, but it's not going to capture it the way that getting a photojournalist inside a hospital and showing what it looks like or those mobile morgues that they had the refrigerated containers they had outside of the hospitals you know that really drives it home yeah. i think for for readers and and viewers there was yeah one, i mean there was ahead, one Mom. moment in the in the film um the young woman in mexico sashenka gutierrez i think was her name and she was standing outside of uh one of the major uh hospitals in mexico city and um there was a clip of the president of President uh, Lopez Obrador saying that um, everything is under control. There's room for people who need need it in the hospitals. We're treating everyone who is sick and basically giving a rosy picture of what the government was doing. And then Sashenka is outside of the hospital and seeing taxi after taxi pull up with people basically lying down prostrate in the backseat of a taxi or a family vehicle who are told they have to wait in the car because there's no room for them in the hospital. And, you know, that's the I mean, it was so stark, the difference between what the government was saying and what was actually happening outside on the street and in the emergency room entrance of the hospital. It was it was really powerful. Another photograph that or another thing that I learned um, this week uh, after meeting Paul Ricci, I I knew the name because I know I've seen the byline and I just, you know, seeing that name didn't necessarily connect in my mind to um, to J. Paul Taylor and his family. So I didn't realize the relationship until I met Paul and, and heard him speak. But also he took one of maybe the most powerful border photos of uh a couple of, you know, the this past few years 
I'm sure you remember the event in Del Rio, Texas, where a couple of thousand migrants, mostly from Haiti, uh, walked across the river and um, were waiting on the on the U.S. side of the border to be able to ask for asylum. And there's a photograph of Border Patrolmen right. on horseback with a whip actually chasing these migrants back across the Rio Grande exceedingly powerful photograph. And Paul Rachi, our friend now um, from Messia, J. Paul Taylor's grandson is the, the person who took that picture. And um, I was, I was thrilled to, to meet him and know that he's doing this work. So that was another really special moment Could you from the tell us a little bit for about me. the uh, 2023 social justice awards. So there, there's a faculty, there's a faculty member awardee and a student awardee. And the faculty um, uh, was Dr. Bertha Bermudez Tapia, and she's an assistant professor here in the Department of Sociology at MSU. And she conducted research at migrant camps and shelters in Reynosa and Matamoros, which uh, led her to a scholarly analysis of action for social justice, including advocacy for the rights of asylum seekers and the procurement and distribution of donations, such as mattresses for pregnant women, food, clothing, blankets, and tents. And she also volunteered to uh, to work on on um, with with that area. And then the student is Haley Haven, and she is enrolled in the Masters of Public Administration here at NMSU, which is in the Department of Government. She uh, trained as a peer mental health ambassador in a program here to advocate for mental health awareness for students at NMSU. Um, She's helped with numerous students struggling with their mental health and acted as a guide and compassionate listener to people um, who are struggling um, in that area. And she also serves as an executive officer in the Save the Children Action Network, in which she lobbied for uh, higher quality in learning and education, as well as organizing food drives for underprivileged uh, children. So both well-deserved um, and just I doing uh, I read that Haley is among the first students to be trained as a peer mental health ambassador in a program that um, was started to kind of advocate for mental health awareness for students on campus there at NMSU too. So um, yeah, I, I agree. Very well-deserved. This year's keynote speaker was Catherine Corcoran. Would you like to share what she spoke about? Well, Molly's the one that when we when we got together and I said, okay, well, we'd like, we'd like to get a keynote speaker and we tossed around some names and I was unfamiliar with her work. Um, Molly, why don't you uh, start with that and tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, well, this was just by chance. I think it was even before we met Spencer, it was when we were just emailing and um, I, you know, Spencer asked me to be on the committee. I said, sure. And then um, maybe later that same day or the next day, I saw a posting about uh, Catherine Corcoran's new book. And um, she served as the uh, AP bureau chief for me in Mexico City for many years. And uh, I didn't know her personally at all, but I remember the name and the byline on stories from from several years ago in Mexico. And her new book is called In the Mouth of the Wolf. And it's about the murder and the investigation of uh, the death of Regina Martinez, who was a reporter 
in Veracruz in the, on the East coast, the Gulf coast of Mexico. And uh, I remember vividly when Regina was, was killed in 2012, actually right around this time of year. And I remember it because she was a reporter at the time for Proceso, which is a national magazine in Mexico city, but her base was in Veracruz. And so she was reporting from there and in the same weeks uh, before and after Regina's murder, there were maybe six, eight, several other murders of reporters in Veracruz wow. at the very same time. And um, I actually had the uh, experience a few weeks later in May of 2012 meeting a young man who was seeking asylum in the United States, actually here in El Paso. And his father, mother and brother, who were all journalists, they were uh, a family of journalists in Veracruz and uh, an armed commando had stormed into their home and murdered all of his family. The only reason he wasn't murdered is that he had recently gotten married oh and lived in another house. And so he um, had to experience, you know, going home to the to finding the bodies of of his whole family who had been slaughtered. And then he and his wife fled to the United States and sought asylum. And I I was able to actually interview him uh, at some length uh, that year about his story and what had happened to his father and his mother and his brother. But in any case, all of this revolved around situations in Veracruz during 2011, 2012. And uh, Kathy Corcoran was involved at the time as the bureau chief for the AP. And of course, it was her job to, you know, to get reporters on the ground to um, to get this information into the hands of people in the United States and uh, elsewhere around the world about what was happening in the violence in Mexico and specifically against journalists. And she knew Regina Martinez. And years later, after um, the government's official report of what had happened to Regina came out, which she and all of the other reporters in, in Mexico who knew the story knew that it wasn't true, the government's account of what had happened, she decided to do her own investigation of this murder. And the book is the, the story of that investigation. And it's just fascinating because she really digs into the links between the government officials with corruption that also become involved with some of the most violent aspects of narco trafficking in different places. And she traces these links that relate to uh, what probably caused uh, Regina to be targeted and killed. Um, it, it's a very good book. I would, you know, really recommend that everyone read it. And even I've covered or not covered. I'm not really a journalist, but I followed the uh, events in Mexico and the violence during those really terrible years, both in our region and in other places in Mexico pretty closely. And there were so many details that Catherine was able to report in her book that that I really didn't know at all um, the relationship between several different governors in the state of Veracruz and um, extraordinary corruption 
including links to narco traffickers, which, you know, had ended up in the murders of so many journalists in that particular Mexican state at, in, during 20, 2011 and 2012. So that was the focus of her, her talk. Spencer, anything you want to add? No, I, I think Molly covered it all. You know, I think in MSU, it was great to have uh, a journalist of, um, at the, you know, who's doing such great work uh, here at NMSU. Um, you know, I, I, speaking with, with Kathy informally last night after the, uh, after the book talk, um, she was with me and Molly and another colleague. And she said that, you know, her, her colleagues in Veracruz, I think particularly in Jalapa, said, you know, you, you owe us a, a book presentation. So she plans to go back after things cool down a little bit. But, you know, just that idea that, um, you know, one of the things that we heard at the panels is having a second pair of eyes or having someone you trust to, in a sense, have your back. Like if you, what, what, what would a photojournalist do when they're going to go out in the field and they say, well, so-and-so knows my whereabouts, what I'm doing and where I'm going to be. And, and so, you know, just these journalists who it's, it seems like a very tight knit community. They know the work they're doing. They know um, uh, the quality of the work and, that these journalists are, are trying to do really good work. That's really important and that they're trustworthy, that they um, have good sources and they're going to protect their sources. And they just want to find out the truth and share that truth in whatever medium they work in. Yeah. I, so, I know that, you know, that even, neat. even at the sun news, when, when we are sending our reporters out into a potentially dangerous situation, whether it be a wildfire or a protest or a political rally, we always tell them, check in every 30 minutes, you know, just so we know everything's cool. Yeah. So just to see that that one journalist, in a way, you know, through her work is sticking up for Regina Martinez. She says, I, rem- I remember you. Um, because they did have a personal connection. She almost hired Regina for uh, as a, as a freelancer, but uh, Miss Martinez was unavailable, and so she she came highly regarded. And so you know she remembered who she was, and she goes, "This is an important story because she's a local journalist." And she mentioned, as Catherine mentioned, she goes, "She was not covering the narcos. Mm-hmm. She purposely decided not to cover the drug industry." She was covering local stories and she also wanted to be a spokesperson for the people to sort of call out the government when the government wasn't doing their job. And so she purposely avoided what she considered dangerous assignments that would put her life at risk. But it wasn't the nauticals. It was the government in some, you know, um, fashion. And she goes, "The, the person who probably was responsible, let's say, for the actual murder when missing and she goes, he probably, um, you know, assuming he was probably disappeared. Right. So he could not, they could not, ever, they could never find out what happened. Yeah. He knew but too so, much. Yeah. So just the idea that, you know, Catherine uh, Corcoran said, I'm going to write this story about uh, Regina Martinez. Um, she's one of our own and her story as a local journalist journalist deserves international uh, recognition. Another thing that, that Catherine addresses in the book and, and talks about somewhat last night was um, this, the, the thing that happens in Mexico, I think last year, the number that's usually quoted is about 
13 journalists were killed in Mexico in one year. And this is more than the number of, of journalists killed, I think, in any country in the world last year, except Ukraine, where, of course, there's an active war going on. And, and this happens year after year in Mexico. It's, it's always uh, one of the most dangerous countries in the world for journalists. And um, trying to explain why this is happening in a country that is certainly a democracy. Mexico is, um, you know, it's been a democracy. You know, some people say it's been a democracy back to the days of the revolution in the early 20th century. But certainly um, it's been a multi-party democracy since the year 2000. And yet in this period between 2000 and the present, it's also experienced this incredible um, increase in violence against people at all levels of society. And certainly journalists are are part of the the wave of violence that um, is impacting Mexico. But one of the other things that that she said, when when the when government officials are questioned after the murder of a journalist, their stock answer is, well, it's because he or she was not really a journalist. They were corrupt. You know, they were working for the narcos. And so one of the ways the government will excuse the murder of a journalist is just to say, well, they weren't really a journalist. They were working, they were corrupt and they were working for narcos and that's what got them killed. And Catherine knew that this is, this is not true. And especially in the case of, you know, this particular uh, journalist, Regina Martinez, another thing that, that she discovered when she started re- researching for her book was the incredible number of reports that Regina had filed in just one year of reporting back in the 1990s when she was, you know, first starting out in her career. Um, And I had this uh, experience as well. I don't know if you remember, Damien, but in in 2009 um, uh, or 2008, rather, Armando Rodriguez, who was a crime reporter for uh, El Diario de Juarez, was murdered in his driveway in Ciudad Juarez when he was getting to go to work. And um, at that time, I was documenting the the murders in in Juarez, uh, working with the journalist Charles Bowden, who who wrote a book about Juarez during that time period. And um, I, uh, you know, went through uh, this database that I had access to that included pretty much everything that had been in the Diario de Juarez during uh, recent years. And Armando was killed in November 2008. And I would often ask people, do you know how many stories Armando filed before he was killed just in that one year? And most U.S. journalists would guess, you know, somewhere maybe around 100. And this database, it was very easy to get a number, you know, how many bylines for Armando Rodriguez during this time period. And it was 907. My goodness. That's that's three stories a day. Exactly. In three stories a day. And this was not even the whole year. He was killed, I think, in early November. So in basically in 10 months, he had written 900 stories and then he was murdered. And, uh, you know, most of his stories were very short. They were reports of a murder or the number of people killed today or killed yesterday in in the city. Um and during and, during that period, there were lots of stories like that to write. 
Yes, indeed. Exactly. And in fact, I had started emailing with him just because uh, we were both astounded at the number of people who were were being killed. And that's really how I got into trying to keep track of the violence in Ciudad Juarez and and other areas in the border region. But um, but I remember, you know, throwing that number out to other reporters or journalists that I that I knew. And, you know, no one ever even got close to guessing that he actually filed 900 stories in 10 months, not a hundred or a dozen or 50 or whatever. And, and yeah, they were mostly very short stories, but still that amount of work is part of what is the legacy of, of these Mexican reporters. And I think that, that it's important that we respect and, and honor their work. I mean, many of them do perfectly ordinary work and are not in danger of being, being murdered for what they're doing. But, um, but those that are, those that delve into government corruption and um, reporting on uh, narco trafficking and things like this, their lives are at risk every day. And so we have to uh, respect them and honor them for the amazing work that they do. Is there anything either of you would like to add that we haven't talked about today? Yeah, we had a panel before the keynote, and that included, so the future journalism included Walt Rubel. Richard Coltharp, uh, Darren Phillips, and the students were Christopher Hernandez and Cesar Hernandez. And I did comment as I introduced the, the, the panel, you know, the future journalism absolutely includes women. It's just that of the six or seven women that I contacted, none of them were available. And I had a former student who said she could, um, but she had just moved to Austin. Um, she actually, interestingly, I didn't mention this, so the future journalism, she left her journalism job um, and now works for the city of Austin, probably in um, some capacity where she's using all the skills that she developed over the years. But, um, you know, they had touched on a number of things that the challenges and border journalism had mentioned, but basically, you know, how do they, how do they go about their job? And I was talking to Leanna this morning, some of our takeaways, and I have a deeper appreciation for the need to think and invest locally. I believe that's something that's um, Walt's really touched on. He says, you know, people look at the national news and they become discouraged or uh, think that things are, you know, just out of hand and they can't do anything. He goes, don't think about the national news. Really think about the local news. Um, read your local newspapers, uh, support your local and regional newspapers. And if you really want to make a change, get four or five of your friends, go to city council and use your, each of you use your two minutes to talk about a proposition that's going on. And I really thought, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot that we can do locally. And so I really want to uh, learn more about the uh, local newspapers. I mean, obviously people here are familiar with the Las Cruces Sun News and the Bulletin, but also um, other area uh, newspapers, um, whether they're just digital or or not, you still do paper, but just to see what they're writing about and to learn about um, what's going on in our community. I think that was really important. That was a really important point that, you know, here we are learning about uh, Mexico and then the, the documentary looked up Brazil, Mexico, and the U.S. and some parallels that each country are dealing with. But the change really that we can make is local. And so I just really appreciated that reminder 
And it really inspired me to um, think about that and how I can also think about that in my classes. Sure. Anything else, Molly? Oh, another thing that the future journalism panelists uh, talked about, and actually it was touched on in the other panel as well, and uh, in questions from the people in the audience and on Zoom, is the issues of misinformation and disinformation and the weaponization and the politicization of, of all of these kinds of information sources that are out there now in the world that are not the same as as good journalism, not the same as as the actual ethical and rigorous practice of of reporting that 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 real journalists do and how to combat that. And the panel last night really focused on the need for something that that journalists can't really do, but that those of us who've worked in academia and and who are involved in the community in different ways, focusing around education. How do you educate the public from early ages, really, to know what good information is, to know how to be critical users of information, to know how to to judge when a story is true or when it's uh, fake or when it's um, produced simply to elicit some kind of anger or political response from um, from the public. And the critical thing that came up is how do we how do we teach media literacy and information literacy? And as a retired librarian from NMSU, you know, that's something that I did from the my very first day on the job as a librarian back in, you know, the late uh, 19 or the early 1990s. And it's really, really difficult. The media landscape has changed so drastically just in those 20, 30 years with all of the different kinds of online information that are available, uh, information in social media. People have access to so much, and yet they don't necessarily have the knowledge to sift through what's available to know whether they can believe it or not. And that's really the challenge. Another challenge for um, for journalists in the future is to work with educators to really figure out a way to educate the the public as to um, what they can believe, how to become uh, real, knowledgeable, educated consumers of information that's available to them so that we don't end up with. Well, what I think is now a really divided country. And, you know, we have communities of people that believe completely different things about the reality in front of us. And, you know, that's uh, it's not a good sign for the future because, you know, there I I believe that there is basically reality and um, it's our duty to try to understand it as what's really there. But if there's a whole segment of people or multiple segments of people that believe completely different things than I do based on looking at the same reality, then we have a big problem. And I think we do have one. And journalists are one of the major parts of society that's able to address this issue. And educators are the other one. Very well said. Thank you again, both for your time today, Molly and Spencer. My pleasure, Damien. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk about this stuff. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Spencer and Molly for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at the Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.